Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where myself and my team uh, look at the technology driving the energy transition. I'm Peter White, and as usual, I'm joined by our hydrogen and wind analyst, Harry Morgan. Hi, Peter. Um, our solar specialist, Andrew Swantanar, has, has actually landed in Australia, and he will be with us next week, but he's not yet, yet organised enough to be with us today. And of course, our publisher, Simon Thompson. Hello, hi. On the show today, we're going to discuss... Um, what the entire supply chain issues around solar, as well as the investigation by the US Department of Commerce into Malaysia, Cambodia, Vietnam and Thailand, is what, what, what that's causing, how many people the solar industry may shed in the next 18 months. Um, we're going to point out why small modular nuclear reactors just so, don't seem to be the answer to domestic energy security. and. We're going to look at um, how the Suez Canal is maybe the starting point to a, a real hydrogen industry coming out of Africa. So first, let's take a look at something that came from originally the SCIA, the uh, American Organization for Solar. And there's been a, been going on for weeks now a kind of backlash against Commerce Department investigation into what is a circumvention case against the imports of solar goods from. Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. It, but this week, the SCIA put out numbers saying that um, something approaching 70,000 jobs is the price that's going to be paid for investigating those countries. What, what seems to have happened is most American developers have been getting their solar panels from those countries, perhaps turning a blind eye to the fact that some of those cells may have originated in China and should really be paying tariffs. And that's what the Commerce Department is investigating. And it's doing it on behalf of um, initially a very small American manufacturer, which uh, is only employs about 100 people, which is... Um, it's called o- Oxen Solar in Oxen Solar, Oxen yeah. Solar. Yeah, in San Jose, California. Yeah. And they only make 100 megawatts of panels at the moment. It's not clear where their polysilicon comes from, but they boast that everything they do is American. Some There is some polysilicon made out of America. Wacker, REC Silicon, OCI, Hemlock produce probably enough that companies like Auxin can flourish. But interestingly, other companies like Hanwha have become a part of that complaint, Suniva, Hanwha Q-Cells and LG Electronics and Mission Solar have all become part of that. Again, they, some of these only employ hundreds of people, some far more. So, but this is a case of the manufacturing community wanting these countries to be investigated and the deploying community not wanting them to investigate. This is just the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, we've got the polysilicon shortage, we've got accompanied with that glass, aluminium, steel, copper, silver shortages. You've got the prices going up on solar panels for the first time in years, significant price increases, 20-30%, depending on where you are and what you're paying for the rest of uh, your system. And so suddenly we've had 25 years of solar being cheaper and suddenly it's it's gone up. Um, and then when the, the Commerce Department pointed the finger at those other countries, immediately, the, 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 well, they interviewed 
the, the SCIA interviewed, um, surveyed their members, and they say about 78% of module orders are being cancelled from those uh, countries. Now, if that's true, yeah, that, that the solar industry is going to be holding its breath, waiting for a result. Typically, a result will take more than a year. And so what those countries have done is said, well, no, we're not going to sell to America. We can get paid and we can deliver these rather than wait a year or have our goods caught in transit. Um, we're going to sell them somewhere else. And there's this huge demand for solar building and building all over the world. And the Americans seem to have just shot themselves in both feet. Harry, do you think that's true? Have, have the Americans shot themselves in the foot? I, th- I think so. I mean, I think when you're looking at the US response, the US response just seems to be tariffs, uh, tariffs and more tariffs. And we've seen, especially over sort of the um, recent months in terms of in- inflation, that countries like India, their way of keeping their solar industry alive has actually been to remove their existing tariffs rather than to sort of explore the opportunities of, of implementing new ones. So I think that's the route you have to go down, I think. Oh, no, that's not that's not true. Uh, India implemented an even bigger tariff, found they couldn't survive, and temporarily suspended it. But do you, That's not the same as not of not introducing a tariff. But do, but do you think that that tariff is something that they'll go back to? Or do you think that that tariff is something that they'll realise isn't isn't um, a sustainable option to keep their sort of solar development alive? I know, obviously, you're looking to promote local manufacturing, but surely that should be done by incentives. I, I think this is yeah, yeah, I think this is a, a problem between politics and and um, industry. I think politicians listen to manufacturers who often employ a handful of people, and they don't listen to people deploying um, solar, who often employ tens of hundreds of thousands of people. And I think that that the employment statistics will start to weigh heavily if this is true. I mean, if you look outside of um, America, there is only India uh, that that is trying to do the same thing. I mean, it's difficult to stimulate a business of your own, a solar business of your own, inside your own international boundaries. At the same time, as building out in order to reach uh, climate ambition targets. And you, you ca- can you do both at the same time? Well, the answer is you should at least try. And, and to do that, you should stimulate your um, the companies that are going to make your solar. And Auxin Solar, for instance, has said, no, we don't, we want the government to, to only buy American where it's for its own stuff and give us manufacturing subsidies, which means that they wouldn't put tariffs on the, on the Chinese um, on, on the Chinese panels. And that would make sense. You, you let any, everyone install what they want, and you're giving the weaponry to compete on a price-even basis uh, with China um, through subsidy and support of your local manufacturers. But both India and America are copying one another, and they seem to have copied the wrong homework yeah i think i think it needs to be a case of using the carrot rather than the stick i think you're right in the sense that if you offer developers an incentive to to use local content and give them a financial incentive or give them tax credits for doing so especially within renewable projects i think that's uh that's the way to do it from from that standpoint and i think that's something that we've we've not seen in the uk and it, it will it will definitely come on to when we talk about the the smrs is that the uk really has developed a, a renewable energy industry without any capacity of developing 
wind turbines or or nacelles or, or turbine towers so it's it's interesting to see the different approaches and how much people are are determined to go with local content i think we're what we're seeing at the moment in japan in particular as well is that they're really pushing for for high levels of local content but it's whether or not again that we see that that done through tariffs against chinese imports or actually just incentives directly for actual local manufacturer yeah i mean um when we go back to china 20 years ago the european commission and america were always um, having arguments about them dumping and there was a kind of definition for dumping which was you're making them at a price that you can't sustain you're selling them to us below below market price below cost price um, and in the end you'll just bankrupt the whole industry and we're going to stop you from doing that now what goes on in solar is the more you make the cheaper you can make them. And if you've already owned that industry, as China does, 80% of it globally, then you are just selling them at a, a price you can make a profit at. Therefore, it's not dumping. And so what is it they're putting the tariff on for? The, the tariff is, is, is notionally a dumping tariff. Now, we get confused with the Uyghurs and oh, it's some kind of penalty. Well, that's a different thing. If, if, if you say that region is banned from supplying, it means all the other regions are not banned. So you can't you know, level it against China per se. So this is a dumping uh, tariff when there is no evidence and there's, no, there's not been any trial to see if there was any dumping. And this was only started two or three weeks ago, the, the, the inquest. Uh, so so the, 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 obviously back in 2018, Trump put the tariffs on. And people would argue he wasn't wrong to do it. The court told him he couldn't have tariffs on bifacials because nobody made bifacials mm. in America. He then got that, that then got reversed. Um, the new legislation from Biden has said bifacials do not have the tariffs put on them. So, I mean, it's a simple enough thing, isn't it? Make sure that when you're designing your solar farms, you design them using bifacial panels make sure that they, they are going to get an increased throughput if they're by, by facial and prioritize those projects and then you don't even have to pay tariffs so uh, i mean it's what's the implication of all of this on developers in in the u.s on you know utility scale developers yeah, well we've had questions we've had we all we all get a question saying how do i deal with this Mm. I've already had a year and a half of higher, higher prices. Mm. I'm already getting other, you know, more and more problems. I'm looking to source next year's supply of solar panels. Mm. Do I pay these ridiculous prices, or mm. what do I do? And of course, what what we've seen is companies like First Solar who don't use silicon just taking uh, order after order after order. I mean, they, they announced over five gigawatts of orders last week, <laughs> and mm. and. Uh, people are rushing products to market, like Prodskite tandems and things, um, because they can sell everything they can make um, if they're outside the tariff. It's a, it's a real conundrum. I mean, everything that we've modelled on solar relies on the fact that solar panels will continue to get cheaper, and they will. But there could be quite a significant commercial hiccup in that for the next 18 months, People don't know what to do. It's like a freeze. And you can't have the Biden administration saying, install as much solar as you can. We're going to be 50% uh, of our electricity come from solar by 2035. 
if you take two years, three years more out of the equation with tariffs. So it's it is a difficult question for people who just want to make who want to make a, an honest buck out of installing large utility uh, um, solar, and also they're, they're, they're slowly disincentivizing the home solar installers, um, which which we've discussed before. Uh, it is a problem, and I think you know the the advice is always to um, to bypass the tariffs by using by using biofacials, but you've got to. That means you've got to prioritise projects which get benefit from biofacials. I think that's that's one one way around it. Um, we'll keep you know we'll keep an eye on that. But onto the modular nuclear reactors. I mean, I, I, um, I I've been you know a fan of what Rolls Royce have been doing, um, Harry. Uh, but even though I kind of am vaguely against nuclear purely on economic grounds. Um, Anything new happened this week apart from the US, the UK government suggesting they're going to do an awful lot more nuclear? Yeah, so the the news basically comes out of a statement from Rolls Royce. So Rolls Royce have basically said that they're fairly confident now that their SMR design is going to be approved sort of from a regulatory sense by mid twenty twenty four, which puts them on track to to install their first unit by twenty twenty nine, which is is kind of on track for their their plans to have around 10 of these units online by 2035 it's i think this is the 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 whole point really is that this timeline again we're talking about 2035 so it's not going to help with the emissions cuts we need by 2030 it's not certainly not going to help with the the energy bills that we're seeing across the uk or indeed across the world at the moment Uh, and it's not going to help in terms of the immediate need to improve in energy independence and actually wean themselves wean ourselves of Russian imports. I think, yeah, it's not going to be fast enough and it won't be cost effective in the time frame that but, but we've got. But we've got the UK, we've got France, we've got South Korea, we've got Japan, all talking up nuclear again as an option and all talking about for the next five years installing those hideous monsters, which are much bigger, three, four gigawatt monsters that cost the earth and take 11, 12, 13 years to build. Yeah, and I think when we're looking at nuclear, I think as if we look towards SMRs and what the companies like Rolls-Royce are offering, it, it's a far better alternative for the nuclear industry than the Hinkley Point Seas, the Sidewell Seas, um, the Flamanville project in in France. I mean, these projects have been um, <laughs> overrun by... The, the Flamanville project is is, is is almost code for you know never deliver, just keep taking money. I think it's 15 years in and it's still not producing any electricity. Yeah, exactly. And I think the fact that SMR is going to be much smaller and much more decentralised, that that will make them more accountable in terms of delivering projects on budget and on time. I mean, when we're looking at uh, Rolls-Royce's design, they're looking at a 440 megawatt unit, which is quite large by SMR standards. I mean, most are sort of in the 100 megawatt range. And at 440 megawatts, that's probably enough to power around uh, 1 million homes. So that's a huge amount of um, power really from what's being called a small modular reactor. Uh, but if you look at them compared to things like Hickey Point C, it's going to come in at about a twelfth of the cost, around two billion dollars. Uh, two billion dollars, and the construction in just sort of five hundred days. So it's a much quicker process and a much more nimble way of getting nuclear online. But we've done detailed calculations, I presume here, that that if you were to to um, install five six hundred megawatts of solar and put in a couple of hundred megawatts of battery, that you could produce the same class of stable energy for a fraction of the price 
yeah, not now, which is what the UK government seems to yeah. be uh, looking at, but in 10 years' time, certainly. I mean, we're still, if you look at the, the rate at which um, battery, uh, the cost of, sort of energy storage is falling, you, in, in sort of a year or two, we'll be at a point where solar plus storage is below the £65 per megawatt hour that we're looking at in terms of... The, Do you not think it is already? Um, probably, possibly not in the UK, where we're looking at um, possibly pairing offshore wind with battery. But certainly when you're looking at countries maybe like Spain or countries um, in the Middle East where you've got much lo- much lower cost of solar power. I think it definitely is. It's definitely below but, that. But when you look at... I mean, when you... But when yeah, you look at yeah. who's looking at nuclear, it is these countries in in the in the north um, who are looking at you basically having a renewable energy system based on wind, which is potentially slightly more expensive than solar and harder to commodify than solar. So I think this is why we're seeing these countries looking for for nuclear as a, as a a hedge against wind and potentially looking at the fact that wind it might be more difficult to set up production for the facilities at scale. And I think largely it's a result of the fact that these countries have failed historically to to ramp up their production capacity for wind turbines and a way of having potentially an alternative route of providing uh, net zero electricity by 2030, which let's be honest, these net, these SMRs will produce. It just will come at a great expense. And at $65 per megawatt hour, it's going to be at the cost of the taxpayers because we're already seeing the UK subsidising this. And I imagine that's something we're going to see throughout the course of the nuclear industry's push towards SMRs. But presumably then you're going to have nuclear not winning auctions uh, and not getting um, or, or having to be subsidised by government in order to to be part of the commonplace supply of electricity, um, and so that that's kind of, that means that the electricity itself won't be more expensive at the point of sale, it, but the taxation process will have to fund uh, an awful lot of the capex. Yeah, I mean the money's coming from somewhere, so. Um, whether or not it's coming from carbon taxes funding these plants or whether it's not it's coming from um, just general taxation across the UK economy or across any economy, um, it, we'll, we'll get to see that. But what, 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 I mean, what, do you, what do we think these governments, and we know Macron, I mean, he's, he's kind of caught in the middle. You know, yeah, EDF, lots more uh, nuclear power because we own EDF. Um, renewables, yeah, yeah, renewables too. Um, he hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. The, the price differential on them is vast. The timing delivery on them is vast. So, I mean, do the politicians simply say what they're told by trusted advisors who happen to be uh, in the pockets of these companies? I think that's definitely part of it. I think when you're looking at it from a UK perspective, and we are talking about this earlier, the UK is desperately looking for ways that it can create some sort of energy business. And I think Rolls-Royce... Is a great way of doing that for them. Um, I mean, Rolls Royce's other businesses are basically crumbling in the sense that they can't um, shift towards uh, sort of innovation and future industries quick enough. Certainly within the aviation space and within sort of industrials and power generation space. Yeah, but the aviation space, everyone's in the same boat. Yes, I mean, I don't see them as being behind the curve against GE um, or or against the big uh, Chinese manufacturer, and they they get fifty percent of the orders from Boeing. So. They're a, they're a good company. They've got to solve that problem. They've got to run on hydrogen, and they've got to have it by 2035. And that's everyone's got to do that. In the meantime, they've got to run on SAF. Uh, and I think that's pretty much the plan for aviation. So that's stabilised in the last two years as SAF um, moves have been made. Um, you know, I don't see the desire to fly evaporating. 
uh, I see perhaps consumers not willing to pay the price of funding a transition and that being a political battle. But in the end, I don't think aviation companies, yeah, they're not, they're not going to have orders tomorrow. And in the, in the run-up to delivering hydrogen um, engines, they're not going to have any orders. So they're going to have a, a, a difficult time, but someone's got to supply those engines. But that's the only business, really, that Rolls-Royce is in that's any good. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is whether or not this business is going to provide enough margins, obviously, with nuclear you're going to be competing not only against against renewables plus storage, but you'll also be competing against the huge number of other companies that are looking to provide SMRs. I think there's something like 60 designs currently being proposed around the world. New Scale being the fav- one of the favourites. I mean, Russia's Rosatom was also um, was also a favourite, but obviously that might be a somewhat different perspective on that now. But we're looking at, we're at a point where there's already four being built, and I think the fact that there's going to be this competition means that the margins are going to be tight. Uh, competing with renewables plus storage is only going to make that worse. So I don't know if it's necessarily going to be the saving grace that Rolls-Royce are looking for, but it will potentially embed them more within the UK economy and within the UK government's um, sort, of revenue, sort of revenue streams, I guess. And, and anyway, you know, you expect China. To, so China, currently, there's more miles flown uh, in China than there is in America. Um, so the... the um, Chinese airlines have the ability to act as kingmaker to any engine supplier. I presume that they would favour Rolls-Royce over GE, but in the end, the Chinese will dominate that space. We'll see the same thing we've seen in, we're seeing in wind turbines now that we've already seen in solar panels. Uh, it will be a renewable space. Making aircraft engines which run on hydrogen will become a uh, something that the Chinese come to dominate. So you're, you're absolutely right. That, that's going to be under pressure, margin pressure, and it won't be able to fund another business. What will have to fund the business is um, the London City, and it will need evidence to provide it that, um, that uh, and, and that's why the government is so keen to say, oh yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to have uh, a, a major supplier, it's going to be British, it'll be an expert opportunity, bang the Brexit drum, but it's just, it's just not, hasn't got that automatic uh, success factor you know, the economics are not so heavily, like renewables, people that install solar in volume make money. People install wind in volume make money. And they don't need help making the money from the government. There is a danger that um, that Rolls-Royce, or the part of Rolls-Royce that makes the SMRs, becomes a basket case that is all living on a, a government handout, and then and then it, it runs into problems with um, with the World Trade Organization. When it sells overseas. Yeah, I think I think the, the overall way to look at this and the story in particular is that nuclear really isn't the way that government should be looking. But the fact that they are looking towards nuclear means that SMRs probably do have a big upside. Um, I think SMRs are the innovation that will keep the nuclear industry alive until fusion comes along. And I mean, even when the fusion industry comes along in 100 years time, that will be based on a different technology, a different uh, set of supply chain. So I think having a stake in SMRs is a good hedge um, in terms of if you're going to assume that governments are going to have this nuclear ambition through to 2030, 2040. Um, and I think realistically, that probably will be the case. Governments aren't going to move quickly enough to suddenly eradicate nuclear from their energy mixes when realistically, they need to focus on getting rid of coal and gas first. So, But, but, but EDF, Westinghouse, Hitachi, they're all going to have their own in-house designs. If the Rolls-Royce one is better, that's just acquiring. Yes, exactly. And I think stock in that company. 
yeah. and we and hit, had to hit actually do have one general electric do have one i've not i've not heard of edf developing um sort of elite a leading design for it but i imagine that they will have their eyes on the industry um and will be possibly looking closely at what uh, rolls royce are doing through to 2029. okay um we've got a lot of stories in this issue um i would encourage anyone to go rethink research biz um, click on energy, click on weekly analysis. The stories can be read there for free. And there's always a little glimpse into our research, uh, which can't be read for free in each of the stories. Um, there was um, another item uh, today I, th I thought drew some interest. Um, again, it's one of yours, Harry. The, um, and it is EDF, funny enough. But this whole idea of the waste economy, the waste is really important. The, the global waste has to become cyclical. And it has to be, and every part of it has to be used. The, the natural market for it is is hydrogen. And you've written something about the, the, the Suez Canal and the fuel boom for the Suez Canal uh, coming through uh, a partnership in Egypt, um, and that could ostensibly lead to a, a proper uh, hydrogen location for Africa, from which you could grow an industry. I think Africa provides a really good. Um opportunity for Europe and for itself in terms of hydrogen. I think that's that's what this story really shows. And it shows a, an early investment signals from international countries in uh, places like Egypt. I mean, this week it was EDF and Zero Waste partnered with the Gulf of, with, with the Suez Canal to produce a 350,000 tonne green ammonia project in terms of annual production capacity. Uh, and yeah, looking at focusing that green ammonia towards the shipping industry. So how many megawatts of um, of electrolyzer are they going to need for that? Yeah, I, don't, I, I think I don't... The, the initial pilot project was 200, but, you know, a, a lot more than 200 eventually. Yeah, so I'm not sure they put a, a full figure on it yet, but it will certainly be a significant number, I imagine, sort of several hundred megawatts of electrolyzer producing that green hydrogen and then producing that green ammonia from that. I think what it shows is... There's, I mean, there's several things here. Firstly, in terms of the Egyptian focus, Egyptians are, Egypt's a really interesting country at the moment in terms of climate ambition. Obviously, it's hosting COP27, but it also has huge solar resources. I think it's something like 60% greater irradiation than your average on Earth. They've also got a fair amount of ambition in terms of renewables. I mean, they've missed a lot of targets in the past, but they're certainly starting to shift towards making those targets more achievable. And they've had some pretty good auctions in terms of renewable capacity in the past. And had... what's their what's their energy generation based on at the moment and um, their energy generation at the moment is very much based on oil and gas and very much that they they produce themselves obviously they've been very focused on exports in the past but they're actually their own demand for oil is, is grown so quickly that they're actually really losing their export opportunity so i think they're very much eyeing up new exports i mean they've been doing that in agriculture but i think now with uh, green hydrogen becoming a possibility that's a real focus for them there and uh, they've been very so i haven't been to egypt but i, I assume that this is a rapidly in, in, in encroaching industrialization process going on in that country and it's it's looking at the future and seeing the the solar irradiation is is its real gem yes and what, one thing that and, and this is a real strength for egypt is that they've been very open to uh, international investment and they're not just plowing ahead with their own developers um like, for example, country, uh, countries like India often do. Uh, I mean, we've already seen projects signed by the likes of Scatec, Siemens Energy, Maersk, um, as well as EDF this week. And that will really accelerate the rate at which those projects are developed and the amount of international funding going towards Egypt. The Suez Canal actually it, itself, I think, provides a really big opportunity and potentially a, a landing platform for these, com uh, these companies in Egypt and, and certainly within North Africa as we look to 
and Europe looked to, to secure a lot of its green energy and its green hydrogen from North African countries. Uh, I mean, the Swells Canal, when I was looking at it, it, it sees 12% of all global trade flowing through it. So that's a trillion dollars worth of goods flowing through that canal every year, which considering Egypt has a pretty much a stronghold over the infrastructure surrounding that provides a really good opportunity for then Egypt to provide green shipping fuel, which pretty much all... So, so presumably you can refuel as you go through the canal. Yeah, exactly. And that's um, something that we would very much expect to see. And I think the shipping industry is one that we're going to see de- decarbonize really quickly. I mean, um, we think that ammonia ships are going to be over from next year, according to Force Rescue, and they're very much looking to decarbonize a large chunk of their fleet within sort of the next two to three years. And everyone's going to be looking to decarbonize. I mean, your oil and gas companies that are, are, sh- are shipping things about and have pro- promised to decarbonize their own operations by 2030, they'll be one of the first things they'll be looking at is decarbonizing the vessels that they're, uh, they're using to transport their oil around. Uh, same with logistics companies. So that's going to be a real opportunity for Egypt to actually produce. So all you really need, all you need is the target ports in Northern Europe to say, we will only birth um, ammonia vehicles after a certain date. And then you've got the fuel line. It's an automatic thing. You're going to have to automatically, the whole segment has got to go ammonia, uh, hydrogen-driven fuel. So um, that, that could happen really quick. Yeah, or, or yeah. put a docking tax in for, um, for ships that have uh, bunker fuel. Um, those sort of things. Oh, and you can do things like limiting the amount of uh, time they can run their engines because they run their, all their own electricity off their own engines. And of course, it, you know, if you plug into um, if you plug into the port, that's that's a new another purchase. Um, getting your electricity from there. So you, there's all sorts of constraints that, that the ports can put on um, these people to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's um, I think developing. The hydrogen economy based around this sort of port by port, airport by airport as well, um, sort of a co- uh, way of working and having the actual production um, of the ammonia, of the green hydrogen sort of near the sites uh, where it's going to be used and then distributed um, straight into into the sort of use case. That's going to be a real strength. And it's a really good way of building up sort of green corridors as well. So say, for example, we had um, a sort of a green, a green ammonia port in, in the Netherlands or a green ammonia port in in Egypt, then having sort of green shipping corridors between those two, and you can say this is the first green shipping corridor in the world, I think that's a really good way of then building a an industry for green shipping sort of block by block, rather than having to, how do we do this incrementally across the whole industry? Maybe that ship that got stuck was actually just trying to turn around. You know, you could have a ship coming uh, into the Suez Canal and going back to Europe full of hydrogen. Just that's a joke. Yeah, yeah. People, people understand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's. I think from there, you you, you suddenly a bit, a bit the way a lot of, of oil and gas engineers uh, found themselves working in the Middle East. This could be a time when a, a load of hydrogen engineers find themselves working in the Middle East, and well paid and projects yielding uh, early success. So, yeah, I think. I mean, that would be a good thing, a good step. Simon, is there anything that's uh, caught your eye in the various uh, longer, uh, shorter pieces that we've done this week? Well, it was um, just again about offshore wind um, figures. I I think uh, um, offshore wind turbines are accounting for one fifth of new wind power capacity. 
Harry, you wrote yes another, but it's been a flurry of activity in the the wind sector. So, just wondering if you could tell us more about that. Yeah, so I mean, it comes from our it largely comes from our um, our wind power sort of tracking and our, our short term forecast that we released a couple of weeks ago. Um, Any of you out there that, that are in the wind industry, if you're not subscribing to Rethink Energy um, Research Service, which is only $4,600 and includes all the wind research, uh, then you're missing out. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. But um, what we saw, yeah, so I mean, just in terms of the actual figures, I mean, the story is probably the place to go in terms of the breakdown of where um, those installations are coming from. I mean, it's something like uh, six different countries that we saw offshore wind installations from last week but the, the key really was that of the 19.3 gigawatts that we saw installed um just over 16 gigawatts of that came from china it was a huge yeah. surge of offshore wind installations in china due to the phase out of their uh, feed and tariffs for offshore wind um, which offered huge incentives for for developers there um to develop those projects uh, and we saw a huge amount of projects really surge online to get in ahead of those deadlines and while we're not sure that all of those are fully complete they've certainly been dubbed as fully complete by the by the Chinese government so that's a good thing in terms of building out um, green energy capacity in China. How, Harry how difficult is it to get your permitting sorted out for the sit offshore in China because in America it's it's clearly representing something of a problem even in Europe it's still representing something of a uh, in China, it's far easier. I think they, um, I mean, it's very much uh, state-led and if they want to put, uh, and if they've got this ambition to build that offshore wind, they'll build that offshore wind. Um, if the fishing industry wants to raise complaint, uh, they've not really got anywhere to go to, to to raise that complaint. So it's it's a much easier way to do it. And China was very determined to get this installed. I mean, um, the State Power Investment Corp, uh, which is part, partly state-owned, even set up a wind turbine, wind turbine uh, hoisting special commando team um which were, they claimed was capable of installing an 800 megawatt wind farm in one month offshore um and they've, and, they've, and they've done some quite impressive things china um i mean in, in terms of and we've talked about this in the past a lot as well is that there's been a real shortage of installation vessels um which obviously has, has really provided a bottleneck in installations in places like the u.s well they, they wanted to make all their own didn't they and and they you know that, that was their approach and they started making them some years ago. yeah and they largely have and they've done they've been very successful in building these installation vessels but to build 50 uh, to build 16.9 gigawatts in one year itself is it requires some, some another level of installation vessels so what they've actually done is they've they've got these offshore oil and gas service boats and they they basically bolted on and retrofitted it with cranes that have been used to develop onshore wind turbines uh, to go and do the extra work in terms of actually sort of uh, doing sort of the final sort of checks and bits on the on the actual turbines so that they could um, sort of move the installation vessel and the actual jacket vessels to the the site of the next turbine. So it's actually, it's been a very efficient um, production process, and it sort of explains why we've seen China develop such a large number of projects over such a recent time. And China also has the most projects sort of under construction as well. So I imagine that China will maintain this lead for, for sort of several years to come. So any Western government listening in, uh, you need to get your um, commando team for installing these things and make your permitting <laughs> a lot easier um, and pay, pay the right rates and get crack on with um, installing offshore because it's, it's, it's a no brainer. It's just one of those technologies where, you know, people are, are putting together the funding for projects. They're getting the planning in place. There's tons of um, stuff in the pipeline. Just give it permission to go. Just press the go button. And 
send an encouraging message to the investment community. Yes, we'll buy all this electricity. And, and, and that's a backbone. I mean, we, obviously solar is going to be a larger contributor to the global generation than wind, but not by a long way. And it's, it's a more problematic technology. And it's the combination of the two. And the, the problem I have with it is that, that wind is a little bit too project oriented. Um, and although solar is, of course, in similar way, project oriented, they're a lot smaller. They're often a lot smaller projects, which add up to a, an awful lot of capacity. Uh, in wind, no, nobody is looking at small projects in wind uh, offshore at the moment. So, you know, and, and I think we need to move away from this project mentality. But I think to a certain extent, the wind industry has, does two or three years homework with a new country. It says, oh, we can make, we can use some of your local suppliers, we can shorten the supply line, we can build some turbines here, um, we can start a factory, we can get the get, get everything right for your your country to, to do this quickly. And and it does, it doesn't feel like a gigafactory. It still feels like a bit of a project-based approach. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we saw the Philippines this week with the latest country to, to announce an offshore wind strategy. And I think something that, and basically, we, what we've seen is we've seen the UK, the Netherlands, Denmark, uh, and now China showing real success in deploying offshore wind, same as countries like Belgium. And now the sort of floating wind's coming around the corner. We've got a lot of countries with confidence that they can develop offshore wind, that they can do it at a reasonable cost, and that they can have a, it can provide a significant chunk of their future power. I mean, by 2032, uh, I think we have 25 different countries that we expect to see deploying sort of significant levels of offshore wind. Um, sort of across all continents. So that's a, a real opportunity for anyone trying to develop those projects. We just have to put a zero in the middle of those two digits and, and get it to 205. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So that's that's the podcast for this week. Um, just to remind you, uh, the weekly analysis button, those stories are free when you're reading a story. Forecasts and data are on the right. If you click on any one of them, we will ask you for money to join the party. Um, but if you buy one report from us, that effectively gives you everything uh, that we've done on the research side. And so that's me, Peter White, and Harry Morgan, and Simon Thompson signing off to talk to you again next week.